0: All right, hello and welcome to Between the Liars with Ryan, Josh. Hello, hello, hello. Austin. Hey, everybody. And oh, we have a returning guest. Uh, please welcome back. Mick Davis. Hi. <laughs> All right. Well, thank you for joining us today, Mick. And we're going to have the driving question today of, is corporate landlordism modern feudalism? So we'll go ahead and in a second break down exactly what we mean by that. I can tell you that from what I've been hearing from our pre-discussions before the show, we tend to agree on the status quo being problematic. Where we differ is on what should be done and how these things should be changed. So we'll get into that after the announcements.
1: All right. And I guess I'll kick- us off on announcements. To all of our lovely regular listeners, you know the spiel. You know what I'm about to say. But for those of you joining us today for the first time, I want to let you know that we are all over social media. Go and follow us on Instagram, Facebook, Twitter, and please sub to our YouTube channel so you don't miss any Between the Liars content. Now I'll kick
2: it over to Josh. As always, that we are here streaming Noonet Central. You can find us on Facebook and YouTube. As Austin just said, we are all over social media. And so we try to get our videos out there as well. We also can get notifications from when we do go live or from when a new video comes Comes out as well as, you know, always finding us on Spotify as well for the audio for the podcast listeners. The next thing we want to talk about here is that we still have a merch going on you can get it now it's awesome it was made by monica zaterra and the humble beast studio and it is fantastic and we're also really appreciative of, it, of course it's the background for this video and it looks awesome so with that Mick, if you want to get us started on where do you and i want to start making uh, fun of austin and ryan here um about the housing <laughs> crisis uh
3: yeah uh i th- i sort of i'm glad that we all agree that the status quo is bad i i'm glad we're not debating about whether or not the housing crisis exists or whether or not. It it is just or good. But I believe, uh, as Ryan, we were talking earlier, that uh, this loosely ties to the Build Back Better agenda that you guys were discussing last week. And you know specifically something that concerns me about this topic pertaining to corporate landlords specifically is how they've been recently accused of being more likely to evict tenants um, and how they're largely unaccountable to the status quo housing regulations. This came up in the Housing Committee on Financial Services recently, where uh, Maxine Waters was discussing how there is a growing eviction crisis. Uh, specifically at the hands of corporate landlords. And um, this is a big problem concerning like the COVID-19 pandemic is the CDC put in um, their version of an eviction moratorium. And we're sort of poised to see this problem get worse because generally after recessions, corporate landlords grow in sort of how much housing they control and the consolidation of the housing market tends to go uh, in favor of corporate landlords. Like after the 2008 crash, the corporate landlords held about 20% of rental properties. And now they hold about 50%, especially in some markets, um, notably like Atlanta and Milwaukee and to a lesser extent, New York City. And now on the West Coast as well. Um, so, this recession tri- typically triggers um, corporate housing consolidation. And given sort of the unique problems that this type of landlordship poses to the status quo, like I'm particularly concerned about that and really excited to talk about it more.
0: I think the corporate portion of this question is probably the driving factor here, because as you get larger, you tend to lose the quality control, right? So if you rent from a private company, a small company, or even an individual, or you're leasing out someone's room, there's a lot more one on one, uh, maybe one on five interaction that's taking place there. So the quality is a little bit easier to address. As these corporations come in, they not only have the money and the buying power to like Mick, you just mentioned, buy out everybody else so that now they have this monopoly of sorts, which I'm sure every one of us has dealt with. (laughs) I know Josh did uh, last year. Uh, I'm currently dealing with it on behalf of a couple of my friends. I I I haven't had the issue quite yet, but I've had to deal with it secondhand, help people try to get, whether it be their security deposits back or whatever, these these corporations bully their tenants into paying extra when they vacate the premise or kicking them out prematurely.
2: Yeah. And um, at least from my personal experience that I've had down here in Hattiesburg, there's this company by the name of London and Settlement, and they own, apparent, what seems to be like half of the town. And you drive through town and you see whether it's apartment buildings or it's standalone houses that they all have London and Settlement signs out in front of them. And even the ones that don't sometimes still do, unless it's like a very otherwise owned property. And these are usually going to be apartment complexes, but especially when it comes down to houses, it's almost all going to be London installment. there's another landlord that competes with them. But nonetheless, my particular apartment is is a building they no longer put money into. They're basically going to let it keep running down until they can get it condemned by the city, written off as a loss or something on their taxes. And then are they going to sell the land back to my university or they're going to build nice luxury condos and charge an absurd amount of money because I live fairly close to campus and it is actually a nice location. So they're no longer worried about my particular building, which is why they haven't um, come and fix my fridge after What's now um, 38 days of a ticket being out of um, the refrigerator not working correctly um, because they don't care because I'm one of several thousand of their tenants in one city that they're invested in. And I think where small time landlords can have their benefits, it's that the ratio of tenants to landlord when that's smaller or when that's more on the tenant side and there's fewer tenants, they have more leverage over the landlord as an individual because they represent a higher stake of the landlord's revenue stream. If you're bringing in a million dollars every month and one, of your, you know, one person stops paying $800 a month, then whatever, they don't care.
0: generally I think the direction of this conversation is not going to be saying that renting isn't of itself bad but where the problems are I do know that Josh has some spicier takes going beyond even even that but I think most of that conversation will deal with how can we prevent the corporate aspect Austin what are your initial thoughts on this
1: I think the points already been raised um, I, I live in a pretty small town and so I'm renting from a company they they have quite a bit of property in the town I live in but it's not insane they're locally owned and operated so I haven't had any complaints personally I haven't had an extensive experience renting, particularly in large cities. So I'm kind of getting the smaller town aspect of it. I could absolutely see where if you have a large company that has no presence in the town you're renting in, being somewhere else and operating a bunch of property, that could be an issue. And that's just the nature of if you get too far from the community you're serving, and then you're going to be less invested in said community. So I like to see the people that I'm renting from, I like to see them succeed. They're doing a great job with where I live. And I like to see them being able to produce more things for people in this community. I would probably be less apt to be excited if I was renting from people that lived in a different state that didn't actually care about the people in this city. So I don't know. I think it's an issue of scale and distance.
0: So for those who didn't prepare for this debate, (laughs) I think Josh has some stats just to kind of get you uh, your head wrapped around kind of where we're at market wise at this point.
2: Yeah. So what we're seeing now is that housing prices are rising at a dramatic rate um, year to year from 2020 to 2021. So it was a a measurement that took a in June. So this is why we already have the numbers for 2021 is because we've seen that's where they're still measuring it. Why is the fiscal year in September? I don't know. Someone makes it up. Congress. (laughs) So yeah, like, uh, so we saw 17% increase across that uh, measured um, 12 month period. And that also same period of time, 11% more Americans moved to renting properties instead of owning properties. And this is a continual uh, trend of home ownership decline in America uh, as of large. As of right now, one in three Americans are renting the places they are I live in, and that is continuing to decline. So that brings us to about 78.7 million people owning homes with 44.1 million people renting their homes. So what we're seeing is this, not only are houses getting more expensive and landlords buying up more and more of the property we saw from the 2008 to now with the, the, with the dramatic increase of overall ownership of landlords, but that's still like even happening at a faster pace. As Mitt kind of pointed out earlier on that the you know recession caused by the pandemic is going to be another consolidating incident where this market is. We're already kind of like seeing and feeling that in home ownership prices. And that's something else that landlords have over individuals when it comes to buying a home, where an individual has to buy a home and it has to suit their budget, it has to suit kind of their needs for that immediate moment. The landlord can take on a bit more of a pricey home because they can pass that off on then in part to who they rent it to. And in part, because as the owners, they get to invest in that equity and know that they'll have that property a long-term term which is fundamentally what renters are denied especially when you know on mass when there's only rent properties available.
0: So what I'm seeing from those statistics then is it's looking like just over half of the people who are in the housing market at this point are owning as opposed to renting almost 80 million out of about 123 million. So disproportionately people are having to rent their homes because of the costs. I'm not going to say that this not because of corporate landlordism because that is a large contributing factor. Some other things that I'd like to throw out there that can contribute to this issue would be number 1 rent control because as you keep the prices artificially down on what people are paying, you originally think that it's going to benefit the people because they're paying lower amounts, but you're not able to artificially increase the amount of supply. So really you have low fixed rates that people are paying, which for those who can get housing is good, But for those who can't, it's very, very bad. Number two, if you're going to buy your home, you have to pay things like property taxes every year. And in certain parts of the country, those are significantly higher. You're also going to have the cost of upkeep. My landlord is responsible for keeping all of our places since unless I'm, unless one of us is secretly rich at the moment and owning a house, we're all renting at the moment. (laughs) So you're not responsible for fixing things. Um, Out here in the Midwest, you're not responsible for plowing the driveways. That is falling to the landlord for the upkeep. That falls on you. So those are all additional costs beyond what can be very, very pricey purchase, $400,000, 200000 100000 depending on where you live. But it's important to keep in mind that it's not just going to be corporate landlordism. Now, they exacerbate the problem because they're buying up the options and then making it so that you have a monopoly to rent from. Uh, Mick, what are your thoughts on this?
3: Well, I mean, one thing that I think of a lot when I think of renting an apartment is the the idea that you're still, with your rent, you are um, effectively financing someone else's mortgage. And um, personally, and sort of ethically, I think it's fine for me to pay rent and finance like a mom and pop landlord's mortgage, that makes sense to me. But when you're paying in uh, that rent and you're financing the mortgage for a giant corporation that is outsourcing the upkeep labor to an LLC or something and trying to keep distance from what you're doing, um, that is a lot more difficult for me to swallow as a renter and as someone who's just sort of observing the housing market with the interest of eventually at some point in time owning a home. Is this idea that uh, my money is not, it's economically productive, but it's not for me. So if it has to be for somebody else, I would rather it not be for a corporation. And then when you look at the advent of consolidation, I think that that probably makes a lot of these problems that we're discussing about like the high cost of living and a lot worse, right? Because when you have really high corporate consolidation of property ownership in a specific market, that inherently means that there's less competition for the available supply of houses. That means that there's also less um, incentive for those landlords to be good landlords. Because if you're like the biggest player in the market, you can be a bad landlord, you can have bad practices and who's going to come and like compete you out of having those bad practices? Well, nobody or another corporation who's just marginally better than you. So I don't know, those are, those are the things that, that I think of a lot um, when I'm like, you know, internally deciding where I'm going to live and, and who I'm going to pay my money to knowing that I can't, you know, currently afford to own a house.
0: I've actually got an example for one of the things you mentioned there, Mick, which was that they have the money. It doesn't really matter if people like them or not when you're a corporation. So one of the things that's been happening here with some of our more conglomerate size uh, rental agencies is that they're basically stacking out a bunch of fees so that they eat up all of your security deposit and or your pet deposit. Um, I knew someone who they charged him to replace all of the carpet because they said it was damp because he had cleaned it as per the lease agreement. So they stripped it out and then forced him or they're trying to force him to pay for it. It's ongoing at this point. They also told him that the fridge door was damaged. It was damaged when he moved in. It was like nicks and scrapes. So then they're taking that to remove the door and then put on a new one. So they're using this as an opportunity to improve without having to foot the bill. And here's where they're bullying the people. If they just have every tenant go through this and they have, let's say, 250 rental units, if only a fraction of those cave or they win out in court in that case, then they've got extra profit at no cost. And it doesn't matter what people think of them because they have all of the monopoly or or the majority of the housing at that point. Uh, Josh, what do you think on this? And then we'll go to Austin. I think what also stands
2: out is a lot of the times the people who end up, in, or, you know, if you're not in the position to own a house, you're probably also not in the position to retain a lawyer and pursue that company in the first place. So they, they can kind of build it in that way. But I would also look at even beyond the practices and bad practices of different landlords, there's a more general concern of this broader wealth cons, uh, consolidation. This is will be a semi-related take, but I really don't like Walmarts. Um, and here's a particular reason. It's because they Pull money out of a town and they send it up to banks some far away and money goes in. But the net cost of a Walmart is to take money out of a local town. Otherwise, Walmart wouldn't have a location up there because that money they're taking away is what they're calling profit. But that is taking money out of the town. That is taking it away from it. And these corporate landlords do the same when you're in a small landlord position and it's going to a local Company or local, even whether it's a local company or even just another local family, that equity of investing in that house that maybe that uh, owner is doing, you know, and paying off while you're, you know, paying on there, or even just that money they're profiting if they're no longer paying on the mortgage of that house is still money that's being kept inside of the town where these corporations they come in and they set up and they're just draining these towns of their money and returning very bad living experiences in return and with little recourse for a lot of people to have as well.
1: Josh and Mick both raised really, really good points. And I think it kind of illustrates the power of individuals to vote with their feet and with their dollars. When it comes to you know these large corporations, if you see them moving into your town, don't rent from them if you can help it. If you see the Walmart coming into your town and you don't like what they have to offer, you don't like what they'll do to mom and pop shops, don't give them your money if you can help it. Things have been kind of complicated in the past year uh, with the government more or less shutting down the economy so that large corporations are the only thing that can operate. We're kind of in a weird time. And I think we need to move past this time as quickly as possible so we can get back to having some small businesses and it doesn't really apply as much to the small town landlord type stuff. But specifically with Walmarts, this past year was the best year you could have been an Amazon or a Walmart and the worst year you could have been, um, I don't know, Uncle Joe's corner store. I, I I don't have a clue what you have in your small towns, but if possible, use your power as an individual to support these local businesses. I know that's what I would try to do. And for myself, it just so happens that the town I'm living in have a a great place to rent from that is a small locally owned business, which I'm very thankful for. So it is good to vote with your feet if you need to move areas and it's good to vote with your pocketbook if you can spend your money where you would like to see it invested.
0: Very, very true. I think I would add to that kind of this idea, though, that everyone has morals, everyone has standards until they have to use their pocketbook. I mean, how many of us as students like we all agree like Amazon does terrible, terrible things to the market for mom and pop style shops. And yet as a poor grad student, how many of your things come from Amazon, whether it be personal items or whether it be your textbooks or using something like Chegg uh, trying to rent because it's convenient, it's easy and it's fast and I can get it the next day shipping. Uh, Mom and pops can't do that because they don't have the staff. Again, similar parallel concept to what's going on with the conglomerate landlords here. So let's shift to the driving question here. We promised this foreshadowed this. How is corporate landlordism modern feudalism? Uh, Austin and I don't think about this in that way. So I'm going to kick this to Josh and Mick to kind of just bullet point out what do you think are the parallels there and then I'll push back on it Austin and we can have a discussion after that but I'm going to give that to you two to kind of go over here now.
2: All right. So. He's been waiting. (laughs) I've been waiting. This is like this even topic came from a debate resolution I wrote about like this to keep it brief. (laughs) Yeah. Despite what Citizens United says, corporations aren't people. And realistically, when you look at the broader global network of capital of interconnected businesses, how it moves money around through its banking systems, through oil futures, through even now they're speculating on water futures, then these corporate landlords, they're not disconnected from any part of that. They're highly related to the bank system because the banks are making money off the mortgages that these businesses are making money off their you know rents on, leases on. So there's this position of where the global network of capital is going to keep working in and of itself. And to the point of you get more and more people living on a rent system and living where they're not investing in their own homes, growing equity, or having ownership of any kind over that, you are functionally having a tax on existing through the means of wealth. Now, most taxes come from when you purchase something, when when you make money, you get part of that tax when there's economic movement. But in the terms of shelter, in the terms of not dying of exposure, the modern system and especially through a writ large rent system is a tax on existing and it leaves people in a position of where they make their money from these global corporations to then pay money back into the global corporation system through their leases that then goes back to the mortgages, that then goes back to the banks that then goes out to the same loans that then go out to their employers and the you know other systems. So the corporations that lease out systems aren't disconnected from that and in such where we're now having to pay you know the corporate existence to live and the corporate existence is what gives us money to do it in the first place, and this corporate existence is the one that gives us access to healthcare through our insurance being controlled through our employers, we're no longer necessarily free individuals, but at the financial disposal of a corporation deciding when we're worth something and when we're worth letting die of starvation and exposure in the current system.
3: One thing that I think of, again, like I discussed earlier, is this uh, consolidation issue and like what's available to you in the market. And I think that you know it's good to vote with your feet and your dollars if you can, but with the advent of corporate consolidation in some markets of like rental properties, that means that choice is much less available and having the choice to buy a home and and doing so is a is a way of like having upward like economic mobility right and we see like persistent disparities across race in particular of the ability to buy a home as a form of upward mobility so like 42 percent of black families own their homes versus 70 72 percent of white families which means that like as corporations consolidate the market and own a lot more of these properties families that like would otherwise um, have those houses to buy because there's only so many houses in the united states like there those houses just aren't for sale or those, um, those properties just aren't for sale. And so like traditionally marginalized populations don't have the option of using that as a driver of upward mobility. And as corporations consolidate their holdings on rental properties in some of these markets, it also opens up tenants who, you know, some of them would be homeowners, it opens them up to like abuse from the largest landlord in the city, like corporations are, you know, they're harder to Lodge complaint complaints against they're harder to take to court. Um, they're more likely to use threat tactics on their tenants. And a market that favors renting is also one that pushes people down as they like don't get a chance to buy those houses. And it simultaneously exposes them to potential abuses on the part of their landlord. So I, th- those are the things that, that concern me about this trend in particular
2: one little more bit more on the idea of generational wealth of like a lot of the time the most valuable asset passed down from family to family is property and houses. And that puts it at a position of, of like, we look at beyond the house ownership racial disparities that exist. We can also look at the broader racial disparity of overall wealth. And a lot of that comes down to property ownership because that's a fact, you know, counts into what is familial wealth. But Money starts being money when it makes money, and that's what equity and land ownership does. If you know, if you have to work for your money, then you didn't really make it. But if your money made that money for you, now that's real money. Losing out on that ability to have equity to pass down through generations plays a huge part in the systemic, you know, disparities in our economic system, and that's why you know we had to make laws to end things like redlining, where banks would literally take a red marker and decide on what part of a town that people of color could live on, on the basis of what these corporations thought to. Seg- Houses that way, and that's just not something too dissimilar here. If you price out all of you know the people you don't want of the suburbs through means of economics, through means of employments, through means of pricing, you've effectively redlined without needing to write it down into policy because you've done it through the economic barriers that even the generational wealth divide of owning property plays to and reinforces.
0: I would say that, Josh and Mick, your points are true, and they are barriers to the system. I'll I'll focus first on, let's go with payments, uh, that rent is is functionally a tax to exist. I would say that it's true that people are paying to to live in a particular place at that point, but I don't think that it's going so far as to say that they have to pay to exist. You have to pay for specific qualities of life that you want, which is why you have the certain amount of ability to vote with your dollar where you're going to live. Now, there are people who can't afford to live in certain areas, so they are kept out of that area. And I think that that problem is, even if you want to look at it from a racial standpoint, if you're going to keep people out of an area based off of what it costs to live there, you don't wind up improving that that situation for people based off of the way that we were just to, say, give people land, just guarantee that housing was a human right. It doesn't improve the situation. So I'm not quite sure where the rent as being a functional tax is any different than, say, I have to pay to eat, you know, I, I have to pay for a lot of things. If I want electricity, I have to pay for that. Everything that we do in life costs money. So I guess I'm not quite sure how that would be considered an unfair tax or even a a targeting a racial class in that instance.
3: Well, I mean, you have to look at the markets that these corporate landlords are in, right? And where they're consolidating their holdings um, and who that traditionally hurts, I think.
1: I think we all recognize the same issues. There are definitely things that you just look at the situation and you see these are the problems. The thing that we're going to differ on is what are viable solutions for these issues? One thing that I I think Mickey had brought it up as far as the, um, what was it, between nineteen sixty. And today, the difference between white home ownership and black home ownership has increased since then. I think that is a good illustration. This is a very multivariate problem. Obviously, historical injustices definitely play a role. We need to have a discussion about that. But also at the same time, we do have to take into account the fact that things have changed quite a bit over the past 60 some odd years. A lot of what we've seen, particularly at the middle of the 20th century, was a lot of programs by the federal government trying to address some of these issues and to actively correct against some of the injustices of the past. If we see things trending in this direction, in the wrong direction, where that gap in homeownership is being increased, we need to ask the question, did some of these government policies have, did it play into those things? At a time after Jim Crow and at a time when a lot of the de facto racial policies were eliminated from the books, uh, our law books, those were gone But we still saw things trending in an improper direction. We need to find out exactly were there other government policies meant to um, alleviate some of those previous issues that didn't do what they were intended to do. I think that's a question worth considering, uh, considering that we have had a pretty extensive war on poverty for the past couple decades. Did it do it as it was intended to do, I guess, is what
0: I'm getting at. One of the big points that I think it was Josh raised at at this earlier segment here was the idea of generational wealth is built through land. That's true. I agree with that 100%. And I also agree with the fact that historically, uh, if you have been of particular classes, you haven't been able to own land through the law. And as that's changed, it's still been difficult to acquire that land. Or even if you're just lower class, lower middle class, middle class, maybe even upper middle class with the way stagnation and inflation are going these days, it can be difficult if not impossible, to purchase a home, which is, as you mentioned, Josh, 100% true. Moving up through the classes is built off of that. I think one key thing to note there is that it is a barrier, but it is not impossible. If you look at all of the United States, all of the classes, on average, people are likely to move up three classes over the the course of their lifetime, which makes sense because, you know, right now, as poor grad students, we're fitting in the bottom classes. You get a full-time job, you move up a little bit, you get a promotion, you get certain things based off of your education, things like that. You might be able to purchase a house. You can have passive income. You continue to move up. Now, that's going to differ family to family, and it's going to differ person to person based off of how far you can go. But it's not like it's fixed. So I would say that I don't think it's feudalism, to kind of get back to our main point, because in a feudal system, I was incapable outside of birth to progress. Today, I don't think that that's going to be quite the same. Not to say there's not obstacles, but it's not the same level of impossibility.
2: So th- th- I think that fundamental point is addressed in um, a piece by an author, by a rhetorician by the name of Dana Cloud. And she examines this idea of tokenism by looking at Oprah Winfrey's story. And a lot of times we're willing to examine our common system and say, well, Barack Obama is the president, so racism isn't here anymore. Or this person uh, got to this you know instance, so you know why can't the rest of you all? And we can say when we examine it at a societal level that it's possible because some people can do it, but that completely overlooks the times and when it is the majority of the time in that instance, when there are people who it is impossible for them and it's possible for other people in that same class because they have different variants going on in their lives but for then the majority of people in that we uh you know we don't see them have the same abilities and the kind of uh the the flaw that then comes from this idea of tokenism is that we don't give enough of a close read to the backgrounds in particular that made one individual that allowed them to succeed and to see how the things that did end up having them to succeed actually are impossible or explicitly not available for most of the people people who otherwise look like them and come from the same places and communities they do so we do see standout cases happen but we don't see that for still a lot of people and on those lines of like where you know where those impossibilities get created we do you know see those happen to some people in some communities a lot of more of the a lot more of the time than it does for other people and it's better but you know it's still quagmired in awfulness
3: yeah, I mean, one thing I was thinking of when Ryan was speaking just a minute ago is this sort of difference between something being literally impossible in the case of like what we traditionally understand as like Middle Ages feudalism, where it's it's you're prohibited by a legal system where you're prohibited by force from doing something um, versus something being functionally impossible, which I think is sort of what we're getting at, Josh and Eric getting at, which is that like yeah, it is like theoretically possible that someone can you know move up out of their socioeconomic position by owning a home or by escaping this cycle of dealing with corporate landlords or whatever, but it in depending on where you live and what rental market you're in, um, it can be functionally impossible, and we see this in particular with corporations doing what's called milking, where they go into um, the quote unquote bad parts of town. Which is that's that term in and of itself is sort of mired with particular social indicators. But they buy distressed or old homes and they fix them up and then rent them for higher prices, which hurts the local population that was already there and drives them not only out of the home ownership market but it also drives up their like functional cost of renting, um, which means that like it becomes kind of functionally impossible for them to move up in that particular market because renting is so expensive that they're not going to be able to put away money to buy a home. And even if they could put away money to buy a home, now the home, like the home prices themselves have like skyrocketed because these corporate landlords are buying up this, these old properties and turning them into something that becomes luxury. I mean, I grew up in the Nashville area and we see that a lot in East Nashville and like particular parts of that city. And for those populations, like are they prohibited by force or by like a legal structure from moving up and out? of that cycle of dealing with these types of landlords? No, but it becomes functionally impossible because of these large corporate conglomerates um, that build luxury homes in their particular rental markets.
1: Also being from the Nashville area, I have seen some of that firsthand. I used to work down at Vanderbilt, so I would have to cut through some areas back through there behind the public health department or whatever. I don't know if Mick, if you're super familiar with the area down through there, but there used to be, you know, a lot of small houses, flats and stuff over the course of my two and a half years working in Vanderbilt, I did see that transform into large apartment complex sort of things, large sky rise things that were quite expensive. So there is definitely an aspect of that where you're seeing that in large cities. Not going to say that it is a net good by any means, but a lot of that does end up, it can bring more businesses and whatnot for people to work at. So I think while you wouldn't see every area of a city stay exactly the same, I don't think it would be a net good for everything to be frozen in amber and kind of stay the same all the time. I think there is an aspect that some of these developments and not to say that like if if it's a corporate landlord doing it, it's a net good or anything, but these changes do occur in cities. They occur in suburbs. They occur in rural areas. People move around. People start businesses. People build homes and whatnot. I think some of that change, it is not entirely bad. In some cases, it can displace people, but I do think that does enter in the conversation that we do have the freedom to move around more than ever before these days. Uh, One of the reasons that I did not stay at my previous job in Nashville was because of the high housing prices. It has driven me out to more of a rural area. And quite frankly, I enjoy it more. And it's given me the opportunity to advance my education in a different direction. That's anecdotal, of course. That's just my personal experience. But I think that is something to consider since we have more freedom to move than ever before. Some of these developments and changes you would see, they may be coming more often, but I don't think they're always a terrible thing.
0: So we have a question from our audience members. I appreciate your question, Angela. Uh, Who is going to offer the counter-argument in favor of the corporate landlord perspective. (laughs) I I don't know if any of us would uh, support the corporate portion. I can transition us. I think that would segue us nicely into kind of the small time renting for passive income, because that is one way that people can generate wealth. And I think that I would defend the corporate landlord perspective only insofar as saying that the amount of force against the corporate landlords disproportionately harms those who are at a smaller point with their financial gains to be able to actually accrue these houses. So, for example, capital gains tax is being proposed through the Build Back Better agenda to go up to, I think it was... uh, Uh, they're negotiating down about 27% instead of the current up to 20%. It would go up to 27%. And it can go as high as I think it was 37% is what they had originally asked for. That would harm, and we'll talk more about this in a bit here, but that would disproportionately harm those who don't have the capital gains wealth to begin with to pay those taxes, which means that I think that there's a certain amount of free market that has to exist. But I will kick this with the question of uh, what about the people who renovate homes, uh, the milking, so to speak? You can flip houses as a profession and you don't, you can be, a small business, you might have you and a couple of crews, or you outsource those jobs in that case. It's not the corporate level. What are, uh, Josh and Mick specifically, what are your thoughts on that? Against it? For it? I mean... I
2: don't it, know. <laughs> it's, it's just a, a different type of gentrification. And I think it, I think there's a difference between buying a property that's currently usable, workable, serviceable, and then intentionally letting it decay, like a lot of these companies do, and buying something that you need to put some work into the first place because you are trying not to have a building torn down. You're trying to reuse a structure that was already there, but has you know, since fallen into disrepair and needs some work put into it. And I think there is something to be said about that having a little bit of value because it's pro- it's usually better to reuse anything we've already built than to have to completely build something back entirely new. There's going to be less environmental and economic impacts for that. And there's just no reason to wet- let someone's good work in the past go to waste if we don't have to. So anytime we can restore a structure and you keep using it for another 30, 40 years, I, I think that's going to be something beneficial. I do think the aspect that it plays into gentrification, though, is if you have a house that's condemned and you buy it for $5,000 and the average you know, house price where are in these the houses community? <laughs> well, just but you know, the average house price, you know, in the community is, you know, like a hundred thousand dollars. But then when you're done renovating this house, you have a two hundred and fifty thousand dollar house. Sure you're going to make more money on that individual flip and transaction because you're able to make it, you know, a lot better. But I also think you're contributing to like helping price, you know, future generations and people who'd want to move in that community out by doing so. So like if you're going to renovate a house, you know, why not renovate it to, you know, The average level that is the community because you're still going to be able to sell it, um, but you don't have to, you know, do something extra to price people out of their communities where even a lot of the times, you know, historic communities that have lived in, you know, groups of people have lived, you know, in different parts of towns for a long period of time now. And then these kind of outside corporations come in and, you know, price them out and make them move over the years.
0: So Josh, I think one of the main cruxes of your argument there was kind of gentrification. Mick, do you want to kind of briefly break that down in case some of our audience might not be quite familiar with what that process might look like and what that is?
3: Yeah, gentrification is basically just like a process that changes the general character of a neighborhood. Um, Generally, this happens to like poor urban areas. Like we were talking about Nashville specifically. Um, So in that city, we were looking at neighborhoods like East Nashville or like Inglewood um, that are traditionally low income. Um, And because the houses are cheap, and the properties are somewhat run down. People who have money, um, corporations, wealthy individuals, small-time landlords, things like that, can move in, improve the houses through flipping them or renovating them in some way, and then renting them for higher prices, which attracts different types of businesses, different types of things like that that would change the character of the neighborhood. And the real sort of negative impact of gentrification is by increasing the housing price and um, changing the character of the neighborhood. The effect is that it displaces the population that was there before these wealthy individuals came in. And so at least in the example of Nashville, which is the market I'm most familiar with, a lot of the corporations in particular, but also wealthy individuals that came into that those particular neighborhoods to gentrify them sort of treated it as if it was not a place that people already lived. Um, and the impact was displacing the people that were already there by pricing them out of the market, not only in housing, but then also in the affordability of everything else, food, because, you know, you you have suddenly you have a Whole Foods instead of a, you know, food line or you know, something like that, because different types of people are living there in a different, you know, tax bracket in a different sort of level of wealth. And when it comes down to small time renting versus like corporations, like I'm probably going to be more in favor of if I have to choose a landlord, right? I'm going to go for somebody who's doing the small-time renting. But I think it is important to remember that wealthy small-time renters can still participate in uh, gentrification or small-time landlords. Uh, they can still participate in gentrification and they can still like have those negative impacts on, um, on that particular community by displacing people and pricing them out of the market.
0: So the main problem from gentrification, as I'm understanding it then, is this idea that you are taking a problematic area, a rundown area something that can be improved. And then you are adding some sort of value to it, which then raises the cost of living around there. Because if I live next to a nice park instead of next to a rundown dump, then the land is going to be worth more. So by improving my neighbor's houses, you've driven up my cost, which if I own the property is great for me because my property value goes up. If I'm renting, that's harmful. I think it's important to keep in mind as as problematic as gentrification can be. I think that you need to look also at where are the area's that are being affected by this. They're the poorer areas that are run down. And while the people who live there are able to live there because it does cost a little, because it's such a run down area, you're also wanting to improve the area for the quality of life. And this is where we kind of have this push back and forth between you can improve an area, but then the price goes up. And then if you can't afford to live there, you're edged out like Mick and Josh were mentioning. I don't think there's anything wrong inherently with improving the area so that it's a nicer place to live. I think that it is unfortunate that the people as a byproduct of that get edged out. And I think that that should be mitigated as much as possible. But at the same time, if let's say a house, usually the houses that are being flipped for cheap, the $5,000 that Josh says, um, they're going to be the ones that are foreclosed on because the person who previously owned them, they weren't able to make the payment. So then it goes to the bank and then the bank is trying to get their money back. So then it goes back out. So now someone who's able to make a profit there comes in, buys it and then improves it and then sells it for the accrued value there. Someone else gets to move in, in a nicer area. There are more options now for renting, albeit at a higher price. And the area also becomes nicer. To me, I think that that's not necessarily a bad thing. I, I agree with you that the edging out of people is problematic, but I also think that whether or not those those areas that are going to be gentrified in that case or improved, as I'm getting at here, there's still, if, if it's a rundown area, people probably won't want to live there anyway because of the area that it is. I, I
2: think there's a two-factor uh, kind right. of... Uh, crunch there of like yes, people don't want to be there. Like if they had more money, they would probably just, you know want to live somewhere else. But you come in, you gentrify an area and you improve it, and then you know well, I'm a developer and I'm wanting to build new apartment complexes. Am I going to build apartment complexes that I can make $150 a month off of in profit, or am I going to build apartment complexes I can make five, six, seven hundred dollars a month off of uh, per profit? And the answer is you're going to build the nice fancy thing so places that are getting gentrified it's not like the new development that is being made is being done with these communities in mind and so you're seeing increasingly people push towards homelessness you know housing insecurity or otherwise closer to you know a financial edge of you know struggling to provide food uh insurance and all those other things just by the fact that rent keeps going and going up while our wages have largely stagnated as well like rent is more every year but you're not paid more than every year eventually something's going to break
3: Yeah, I mean, the thing that I was thinking of when Ryan when you were discussing that is that I think what you're actually saying that you're in favor of is community improvement and uplift, which is different than gentrification. And the thing that differentiates those two things is who it's for. Gentrification is for wealthy people that don't already live in that neighborhood. That's the purpose of improving, um, building, like improving the neighborhood by building luxury condos, whereas community uplift or improvement is done by the people that already live there that want to continue living there, they just don't want it to be what it is currently, right? So so when a neighborhood is gentrified, it's done by outsiders for outsiders with the assumption that the people there are disposable and um, don't want to live there or can move somewhere else, whereas community investment and uplift is is done by people that are already there. Like I think the assumption that people don't want to live in a particular neighborhood is, is a poor one because I think most people, um, at least I know in a natural example, a lot of people that are displaced by gentrification, they, they want to continue living where they are, they just don't want it to be a bad place to live. So the question of like who is this improvement for Or who who is it being done by and what is the effect? Those are really important questions that differentiate those two types of changes in a community.
0: I think the distinction is good, Mick, and I I agree with that. And I I think it's also an important one to make. I think a similarly important distinction to make is are they actually building it for outsiders or are they building something that they can make a return on that then cannot be afforded by the people who are in that area, which I would then say is more of a byproduct, gentrification is a byproduct. It's not corporate landlords coming in like, I'm going to kick these people out. But rather, I see an opportunity, I invest in it, and then I'm going to, because of what I have made it worth now, charge a specific amount. Austin, what do you think on this? I think from all the points
1: raised here, that we can definitely all agree this is a very complicated issue. <laughs> There's a heck of a lot of moving parts. I think one thing that can't be overstated, especially over the past few years, as we've seen, and I guess the past two decades since the internet, a lot of what traditionally brought people to cities was specific career opportunities. You would go for a specific job. That is why people would move into these cities. We've seen a lot of that breakdown over the past, honestly, over the past year has been the Kind of the death knell in the coffin for a lot of these types of jobs. You don't have to live next to your place of work anymore. You don't have to live in the city anymore. A lot of that over the past decade or so has precipitated into an increase in commuting from outside the city. I have myself an, an example of that. I had to commute into Nashville to work at Vanderbilt. But at the same time, what we've seen in the past year is a lot of work from home type things. I'm curious to see where that leads in the future and what we see as far as trends that you see with you know cities and neighborhoods becoming a little bit more strained and a little bit more rundown, companies moving in and whatever form it takes, gentrifying those things. I'm curious to see what trend that takes in the future with less people being relocated for the sake of specific jobs, because there's nothing keeping you from doing your, I don't know, your IT job. Uh, You don't have to live in the middle of Nashville. You can live, you can live in Montana. I I don't know. You live where you want to live, but I don't know. I'm just kind of curious to see where that trend leads large cities as the traditional draw of large cities has honestly been outdated over the past few years.
0: So to Austin's point of this being a complicated issue, as we're we're running out of time for our hour segment, and I know all of us are on a tight schedule, I don't want this to be the get together weekly and gripe about the issue. (laughs) I want us to propose some. Josh, I remember you mentioning something about just giving people homes. Could you talk to us a little bit about that proposal? And then maybe we could have a little bit of discussion about that.
2: Yep. All right. Time for the prolonged spicy take. There are 17 million housing units sitting absolutely empty in America, doing nothing but increasing in value, waiting for someone to have enough money to come along and take use of them. Nothing, not a nope sitting there. Bugs, roaches, might as well. Empty houses. There's only depending on what source you cite here 600 to 700,000 empty ho- or homeless people without consistent shelter in America there are 17 million empty housing units and 6 to 700,000 people in need It's not like we can't build them. It's not like we lack the material power to do so. It's not like the might of our economy hasn't overcome the scarcity of shelter. We very much so have several times over by a factor of 10 even. The same instance has with food. A lot of food gets thrown away before it ever reaches our grocery store tables. Not because there's something wrong with it, not because it's going to taste bad, but because it has a blemish on it and they're afraid it's not going to sell. And so they don't want it to sit in their stores and occupy that capital. So the farmers themselves will throw it away. We pay pay farmers to burn their fields instead of harvest it sometime to stabilize the market. We just have them burn and waste their food and crop to make sure it doesn't impact the overall overall market too much. We have oil companies who are now getting contracts to leave the oil in the ground because that money is better spent improving the environment that way than necessarily through the actual production of the uh, economy. And so what we're seeing here is when we talk about economics, and we also you like to say, you know, it's how do people make decisions with scarce resources to acquire scarce goods? And while obviously there's no you know thermodynamic breaking infinite amount of something of but you know out there, but it's very clear we actually can house and feed everyone and we wouldn't have to do anything other than suffer the economic consequences of letting it happen because the material is there. It's There's no scarcity here. There's no shortage, um, and it's there. And so we are artificially creating shortage to further the growth of capital and to make more money, to drive up housing prices that makes banks more money, and it doesn't do anything. And as a further kind of even note footnote in capitalism of like, why, when we overcome scarcity, should we just start giving away the product for free? Is that because there are still scarce resources in the world, like our global uh, chip shortage right now? And so isn't it better that we push and have what is competing over the scarce resources left rather than basically requiring people to pay what we otherwise have full and plenty enough of? There's no reason not just to give everyone a house. There's plenty of them. They're just there, empty, doing nothing. And people are freezing to death in American streets while there are empty houses on those same streets. People die from homelessness while we have empty houses on the streets. Those empty windows look down on their bodies in the winter. That is what bothers me so much about our modern landlord system.
0: So, the first thing that I push a little bit back on is the the how of do we give people housing? because I think there's a certain amount of uh, entitlement that goes along with the just giving or just the taking in this case, because you'd have to take. if we're if we're even talking about utilizing those seventeen million empty homes, who my question is going to be and and i don't know the answer to this who owns them and why are they vacant at the moment because in a capitalistic system you're going to see those homes filled if they're able to do so so it might be something like it costs too much there and so people can't afford to which i find that to be particularly unlikely because the ultra wealthy at that point could live there if they wanted to. You might not see the people that you want moved into those homes, but I'm wondering, is there perhaps some kind of regulation on them that's preventing them from being rented out, or or do do you know, Josh? Um, no, those. Uh, so those
2: 17 million units are available for rent or purchase on the market. So that's not condemned buildings or things sitting vacant. That is, they are available and open for people to approach with activity, uh, economic activity. There is just no financial way for them to do so. Some of them will actively come up, you know, go up and go down like a normal house will. There's a lot of properties that are listed for sale for incredible prices on the market um, for tax reasons as a way to list it as the properties actively being sold. But nonetheless, it just still gets to sit there and increase increase in property value as a long-term investor for corporations.
0: Okay. So then my broader point there is going to be that these aren't just homes that the government owns. They're not just homes that are vacant in the sense that nobody owns them. They belong to people. So to just give people these homes or, you know, what have you, you reach a complicated issue in that sense because we need to dissect then. How do we take control of those? And I would assume the big way there that you would propose is probably through the government, just take them and, and redistribute them. Would, would that be incorrect?
2: Oh, yeah. I mean, um, just whether it's asset fortress or whatever, I mean, the government has several legal ways they can do it. They've done sure. it before. We, we've had entire towns move and wanted to flood them for economic activity and the betterment of the state. So it's not like the government's afraid to come in and take your property and say, this is for the betterment of society our, and of the state and of our government. And so we're going to do it. This is our prerogative to improve society. Um, that's what happened when they built the Cherokee Dam in East Tennessee, where I grew up. They flooded people's farms. They did not... Give them a choice. They compensated them for money and said, "We've made this decision, and this is how this region is going to change because this is good for the community." And to this day, TVA provides about 25% of the region's power and electricity delivery. That at the cost, though, the government drove thousands of people out of their homes when they, you know, flooded that area. And I Sometimes think, the government has to make decisions for the betterment of the communal.
0: And I think the problem with the argument that I, uh, the problem that I have with your previous argument is it takes this emotional appeal, which which is true, right? It is tragic that these people are homeless, but then it takes the power of the government and we assume that the power of the government in this case will be working in our favor because we have deemed that the ultra wealthy or whoever happens to own these, it might not even be the ultra wealthy, that because for the betterment of society, we can just take that. And because I as a citizen can't legally take it because it's against the law, then I should support the power of the government taking it from them, something that they have invested into. And the moral problem I think is equally there because you are now assuming that the usurping of that property is good because I can justify it in that case. I think that the flooding of those properties, Josh, we would look back on that and say that was a mistake. It ran people out of their homes. It caused issues. And, you know, just because you can justify something doesn't mean that it's a good thing.
3: Well, I mean, I just wonder, like, uh, what is sort of the point of the government if it's not going to, in the richest country in the world, if it's not going to um, decrease suffering, right? And we're not talking about taking 17 million homes and like that families are in and running them out into somewhere else. They're empty units. And a lot of them are owned by corporations that are using them as pass-through tax entities. And the homelessness problem is like one-tenth of the number of available units, right? So we're talking about effectively seizing one-tenth of the available units. Largely corporate landowners who are using them as a way to invest in in land. So, I mean, I, my my sort of hang up with the argument is that I, I think sort of the point of the government is to decrease suffering, and if we have a pretty readily available way to do that, I have a hard time swallowing uh, arguments as to why we wouldn't. Because I I have more sympathy for people that are unhoused and people who um, experience housing insecurity than I do for people who own empty units just in general. So I think the, the point is to Decrease suffering, and if we can do that, we should.
1: I think Josh raises a really good point. Particularly, you know, one example in which such a thing has worked was the example of Cherokee Dam being built and TVA being able to provide more power and energy for people in the surrounding area. I have family in East Tennessee, so I've you know heard a little bit about those sorts of things. Haven't looked into it a ton myself. I think. The real discussion there, because that is an option live on the table, would be the degree to which these um, individuals or companies that own these vacant houses would be compensated, the method in which it would be done, and how they'd be distributed. I don't think anyone here would disagree with me when I say that homelessness is a very complicated issue, like everything else we talked about today. Big surprise. But it's not just a matter of providing homes on available. There are also issues of mental health. There are issues of people who do want to live out on the street on their own. There are instances of that. Um, People that don't want to be beholden to the regulations that would come from a public sector housing and any rules that be imposed on them. They're very individualistic people that would prefer to live on the street. I personally wouldn't if I had the option, but That's beside the point. I think the thing that would kind of cut against some of the arguments for expanding those, what would essentially become public housing options would be to look at states and cities that already have extensive public housing options. We see the most rampant homelessness issues and the most rampant housing issues occur in states that already have extensive public housing and have very, very heavy government involving in the housing sector. I'm thinking California and New York, specifically. They have a very large homelessness crisis going on and all their homes are, I mean, I think they probably rank number one and number two New York City and San Francisco as far as highest rent, if I had to take a guess. So I think there are some things that are lying under the surface that if we rely on the government to just hand out the houses. I don't know if it would specifically fix all the homelessness problem. And I don't know if it would really fix the housing problem more broadly because we see some examples where we're approaching those sorts of solutions and they aren't delivering on exactly what they promise.
0: I think uh, we'll let the last round of arguments for or against just for the sake of time come from our hot takes. So we'll be right back with our hot takes. All right. So I'm going to hand this over to Mick to kick things off with their hot take.
3: So I think my hot take is probably just another version of what I just said, which is that I think that um, what we should be um, focusing on both in our like private efforts and when you what we want to support with our charity dollars and um, voting with our feet when we're renting or with our wallets um, when we're renting ourselves and also what we want to be focusing on as um, voters and as the government is to decrease human suffering. And if we have a uh, readily available way to do that by providing homes for unhoused people, that's what we should be doing. Um, I do think that uh, corporate landlords present a, a pretty pernicious and growing problem in our housing market um, to what extent we could correct for that while at the same time addressing things like homelessness um, remains unseen to me at least but I'm not so much hung up on the how we're going to do it and how the government is going to do it as I am what needs to be done I think we need to keep the problem and the scope of the problem in mind as we you know move forward to try to correct for what our housing market has become now.
0: All right. So my hot take is going to be number one. I don't think that the government taking over being handed the gun to execute the will of the popular vote at that point or, you know, however, depending on where we're looking at the government. uh, I, I don't think that that ever goes well, particularly because then you are allowing the government the power to be able to take away and to give at the behest of the people, which means that in a sense, you're putting morality into the pockets of people who can either buy out the vote or who have have the voting power to begin with, and I don't think that it ever goes well. At least one demographic, one half of the people who were not in favor of those is going to be harmed in that instance. A couple of things that we didn't really get into today in the discussion portion that I think would be a good alternative to just providing property, taking property, redistributing, particularly without the appropriate compensation would be lower the capital gains tax, which is something that the Democrats are not trying to do. They're trying to raise it with the Build Back Better agenda if they can get it through. Capital gains is essentially anytime I make a profit on anything that I have brought in and then I sell, I pay a tax on that, which in a sense gives me at least two taxes worth of of payments before I, I see anything on that point because I was taxed on the money I made to begin with from my job that I then chose to invest, turn a profit and I pay on it again. Which means if you really want to give the money and the property and the buying power to people, especially those who are disproportionately affected, you need to provide a way for that to happen. And I think lowering the capital gains tax so they're not paying as many taxes because they don't have the financial capital to do so would be a great way to do that. Number two, and this is the big one, if you're a property owner, you would benefit from this, lower the property tax, particularly in the areas Austin mentioned with California, New York, property taxes are through the roof. So even if you're lucky enough to have the money to be able to pay for a property, you're not probably going to be able to afford the taxes too. If you want to provide housing to the people that they can own, lower the property taxes and stand against the Build Back Better plan. Uh, and number three, actually address the issue. I think that you know Josh makes some great points. And he's probably going to hammer home the moral arguments again. My question then would be, where is the moral inconsistencies when we're looking at taking things because we can, because we can justify them? Be very careful of that double-edged sword. Beware of trying to refute your your opponent's arguments just because um, of moral high ground. Be careful how you would implement that.
2: So I'll start this off with a, a statement that I've uh, long been in love with, and that is, a better world is possible. And I think one of the things more tragically wrong with our world today is we've given um, given up almost on the idea that we can be better. And we keep, keep constantly having to, to push ourselves to always improve, to always keep moving forward. And if you look at human history, it's not been a great one. But if you look at what we've done and how we keep growing as a people, we do seem to at least get a little bit better with time. And understand each other more. So we always, I think we should always be sympathetic to that push of moving forwards with at least somewhat of an optimism of, yeah, things are bad, but there are different things we can be doing in, in the future. And I think that that's really important when we philosophize about what our economy, what our government is supposed to do. If we can produce enough food to feed everyone, then why are we not just handing the food away? We've we've done it. The point of production shouldn't be to make money. The point of production should be to service humanity. The economy is not some invisible thing that humans have to serve in order to survive. It's not some god that it rules us no more than the government is. We don't obey the government to appease the government or else you know, it might lash back at us. We tell the government what we want it to do because the individuals, we the people, are in charge of that government and it should be no different than when we have the economy. But we're stuck in a system of even when the power of labor has overcome scarcity, the thing that plagued humanity for so long, we have enough food, we have enough water, we have enough houses, when we've overcome scarcity, capitalism will invent and force scarcity to justify its own existence and to keep making profit. If it is more profitable to let someone freeze on the street and starve, capitalism will let that happen because it's about making profit and not about serving peoples. And you might say that because it's impossible, that could never happen. But as I've made very clear throughout today, this is happening every single day because every single day there is more food and more homes than we need. And every day there are people in our country that have need of those things and have no access to those things. And that's ridiculous. What is our economy doing other than serving us? Why does it exist in the first place if not for that?
1: All right, everyone, all the listeners, you already know where I'm going to go because I do this almost every week. I'm a small government guy, but that's beside the point. So I think one of the things that we can all take away from this conversation, there is a big problem. There are large corporations that are doing... Some things that we do not like, but the biggest thing that we're going to disagree on is where is the solution? And in this case, I'm going to go with the, this is where the hot take begins. I don't believe the government is going to be a solution provider in this case. The government is very good at promising things because politicians benefit a lot from promising things. They don't benefit quite as much when they don't deliver because if the problem is solved, then they don't have anything to run on. A different point. I think the government has had a very strong and long track record of promising things but not delivering on it. Specifically, like a point that I brought up earlier, we saw a lot of government intervention in the economy through the war on poverty and some other policies that we saw through the 20th century that ended up causing more problems than they solved. Uh, Back at the beginning of the 20th century. I believe it was around 20% of a family's income would go to their housing now you know is closer to 30 within 100 years 30% of their money is going to go toward housing that was after the advent of government intervention there's a lot of confounding factors but i think we could also see like josh mentioned earlier the that there is a lot of waste and people are paid to to waste whether it be farmers burning their crops or oil companies being paid to not drill those are government driven the government offers subsidies for people to do waste the government offers subsidies for people to not promote growth in the economy that's not a good thing what i would not want to see happen is what would happen in a country like china right now they do not have any private there's no private ownership of land it's all owned by the government obviously they we're not discussing the government taking all the land usurping and ha- doling it out but i do see aspects of that and i don't want to see people uh, When the government gives you a house, do you actually own that house? How is it distributed? How can we feasibly say how it's going to be distributed? And does your family get to inherit that home? I think those are questions. Those feasibility questions are things we need to take into account if we're going to talk about the government offering these things. To close out, I'd like to quote Thomas Jefferson. If a government is big enough to give you everything you want, they are large enough and strong enough to take everything you have. I think we need to approach some of these social issues very carefully. Because the bigger we make the government gun, the more we're all going to suffer by the end of the day.
0: All right. Thank you to our listeners and our viewers. I'm sure you find yourself somewhere between the liars. Meet you back here next week at 12 central. Goodbye for now.